0: Hello and welcome to the Education Policy Podcast for England from Voice Community.
1: In this episode, we take you through the latest Covid updates and what they mean for schools' autumn plans. We look at your working life and keeping children safe in education, and we bust those special leave of absence myths.
0: Hello once more and welcome to Voice Communities Education Policy Podcast for England and it's the August edition which means it's back to school. My mum Martin always used to say she hated seeing those back to school posters in shops you know.
1: Well that's probably because they always appear in July before you've even broken yeah. up.
0: Before you've even started your holiday the back to school posters are up in Clark's and in well I probably shouldn't mention shop names should I. Um, all so, the shoe varieties are shoe, all the shoe <laughs> shops are available. Um, Okay, so, you know, we've looked, we've decided this month to, I know, do the dreaded COVID update. I know we're all sick to death of hearing about it and reading about COVID risk assessments and stuff like that. But there are changes and it is really important that these, you know, risk assessments and stuff like that are regularly reviewed, isn't it? So what are those um, highlights that we might be discussing for COVID?
1: Highlights is an interesting word, but you're absolutely right. Risk assessments are really, really important, even though we're totally fed up of hearing about them and probably fed up of reading them. But your employer has to comply with health and safety law. And one of the ways they do this is by having a risk assessment, which outlines the appropriate ways that they're going to manage the risks in your school. So do please read them so you know what they say and what they mean for you. At the moment, particularly important measures include things like having good hygiene for everyone, making sure that there are appropriate cleaning regimes, making sure that occupied spaces are well ventilated, and we'll come on to that in a bit, and also to make sure that you follow all the government advice, particularly on testing, self-isolation and on managing confirmed cases of COVID-19. So there's quite a lot. And in
0: terms of what our members can do, um, you know, it's important they themselves are sticking to the risk assessments, but it's also important that they are sort of to a degree holding senior management to account and making sure those risk assessments are being adhered to.
1: Absolutely. It's everybody's responsibility to both contribute to and to ensure that these risk assessments actually work. So bubbles are no longer
0: required for groups of staff or children?
1: No, that's right. And this should mean that staff and students are able to use all of the rooms and all of the spaces, which again, should help with curriculum delivery, meaning that you can use specialist rooms for specialist lessons. And it should also help pupil management because movement around sites and settings should be more easy. But all settings are required to have contingency plans. And this does mean that bubbles could be reintroduced um, in the future again. Uh, particularly if there's any outbreaks as part of the local health team's outbreak management plan.
0: Speaking of of, of outbreaks then, um, how are schools now, and any settings really, how are they now supposed to manage those outbreaks?
1: The updated contingency framework from the government outlines the steps that settings should take to manage outbreaks. And so this covers four key things. First of all, the types of measures that settings should be prepared for. So As we've mentioned, there are some basic measures that schools and settings should already be employing hygiene, ventilation, cleaning regimes, those sorts of things. It also highlights who can recommend these measures and where. Primarily, these are going to come from local public health officials when measures should be implemented and when measures can be lifted again and how those decisions are made. And so local authorities and mats and um, other organisations such as nursery chains will have these contingency plans in place and you should be able to find them out if you want to understand them. But these are the documents that your management teams will be working with and looking at.
0: I think it's safe to say there's going to be outbreaks. Um, in different places around the country we know um, in the news today as the day we record this podcast that in, in Scotland they've found an increase in Covid cases that they're linking to the reopening of schools not just because students are back in schools in numbers but because that's often meant that their parents are back in work and then gathering at the school gates and so on and so forth so We know there's going to be outbreaks. How are we going to find out about those outbreaks? How how, how are those going to be discovered?
1: Yeah, so the government have uh, published updated guidance on their website, and this guidance details when extra action may be required in education and childcare settings. It lists the following thresholds. Five children, pupils, students or staff who are likely to have mixed closely who test positive for COVID-19 within a 10 day period, or where 10% of children, pupils, students or staff who are likely to have mixed closely test positive within a 10 day period. For special schools, residential settings and settings that operate with 20 or fewer pupils, uh, students or staff at any one time, the threshold drops down to two children pupils, students or staff who are likely to have mixed closely. So as you said earlier, it is highly likely that we are going to see schools having to manage outbreaks. The document does go on to suggest how schools might do that, And in conversation with their local public health officials, extra action might be required, such as the reintroduction of measures like uh, additional testing, face coverings, the use of bubbles, as we mentioned earlier, and in extreme situations, temporary isolation of individuals and small groups or even the introduction of remote learning again. So will will close contacts be traced either by schools or by anybody else? Close contacts are going to continue to be traced, but it's no longer the responsibility of schools to do that. From July, the management of close contact tracing passed to the NHS test and trace team. But this now relates to uh, those who've been in close contact in social settings rather than those who've been in close contact in education settings. So, for example, people who've um, been around to your house for a sleepover or whatever. Um, One of the concerns we have, of course, is whether or not some children are able to identify who those close contacts are, particularly children in um, nursery settings and, and infant aged children who might not know. Yeah.
0: Moving the conversation on perhaps to, to ventilation. Then well, this is from our FAQs on the website voicetheunion.org.uk. Employers must, by law, ensure an adequate supply of fresh air in the workplace, and this has not changed. Good ventilation can help reduce the risk of spreading coronavirus. This means that although windows should be open to allow ventilation, heating should be turned up to maintain a safe working temperature. So there's a balance to be to be maintained there. Now. It's been announced recently that schools are going to be provided with CO2 monitors. What, what do we know about the rollout of those and how they might work?
1: The Department for Education announced last week that carbon dioxide monitors will be provided to all state-funded education settings. So that includes nurseries and colleges that are state-funded, as well as schools. And these uh, are going to be rolled out from September in a drive to help them combat COVID spread in classrooms. Contracts are still being finalised and delivery is due to begin in the next few weeks, months, with the majority of devices available over the autumn term.
0: So 300,000 devices altogether. Special schools and alternative provisions are going to get them first and then all other state-funded schools. Do we know where nurseries and so on fit into that?
1: We don't know where other uh, state-funded settings fit into that. The focus is first on special schools and alternative provision. We also know that regardless of how big or how small they are, the devices have been made portable so that settings will be able to move them around to test their uh, their full estate obviously starting in rooms that have windows that don't open or any other areas they suspect may be poorly ventilated
0: now you and i as former teachers uh, are not scientists martin uh, but do we know what level triggers a response and how long it may take you know i'm picturing a, a regular classroom 30 students in it one teacher possibly a ta with uh, small windows that are likely to be open but that's it. How long is it likely to take a room like that to get to a trigger point? Do we have any idea?
1: At this point in time we simply do not know and that's why it's important uh, for this to take place so that we have got a better understanding of the ventilation problems and the ventilation successes that there are in our current educational estates. And do we know What schools have schools
0: been advised as to what to do if an alarm is triggered, if the monitor goes off?
1: Again, at the moment, there's not been any further guidance published. Um, we're waiting for the devices to be pushed out to schools and and other education settings. And once those devices start appearing in schools, then the guidance will follow. Okay, so I suppose there's some good news in the fact that they are going to exist. Absolutely. There's good news, which is that these devices are going into schools. The bad news is that we still don't know enough to be able to explain what this will actually mean.
0: So I I talked about... um uh, you know, the kind of classroom I could picture with 30 kids in a teacher and uh, just two small windows. Some classrooms do have some kind of air conditioning or air purifying um, ventilation system in place. What are the difference between those and how do did, how did they work? Should all schools be looking at those?
1: Well, maybe. Uh, first things first, let's say that um, if you are in a classroom that's just got windows, it's perfectly safe to use desk fans and ceiling fans to move the air around. Anything that is going to bring in fresh air from outside and move it around your classroom is going to help to dilute the virus. And that's the same with air conditioning and air purification systems. Most types of air conditioning system are okay to be used as normal. In fact, we said back in March 2020, in our first set of uh, frequently asked questions, that centralized ventilation systems that recirculate air to different rooms, they should be avoided but if they could be switched to fresh air supply only, then that was perfectly uh, good. Some systems have got air filtration built in, and there have also been portable air filtration units that have become more available recently. In fact, air filtration, whether it's part of the air conditioning or whether it's a standalone unit, have been shown to improve air quality in general. And a white paper produced by air filtration specialists Medicare say that medical grade air purifiers are proven to eliminate bacteria and viruses from the air. And so obviously this is a good thing. On the back of that, we're really pleased to hear that the government has launched a trial of air purifiers in around 30 schools in Bradford. Um, And we're hoping that this will give us some more information about whether this is an effective way of managing viral spread through air transmission within school classrooms. So let's hope uh, that this could be the end of pupils sitting in cold classrooms with the windows open and blankets covering their knees. Yeah, it's
0: no way to learn, is it that? Um, So those... um Systems with medical filtration, then, are they the ones you sort of might find um, most recently in places like dentists and...
1: Yeah, dental surgeries, doctor surgeries, and maybe hospital waiting rooms as well. You just touched on that,
0: blankets over the knees, it's no way to learn. So temperature, temperatures in the indoor workplaces are covered by the Workplace Regulations 1992, so Health and Safety and Welfare Regulations of 92, which place a legal obligation on employers to provide a reasonable temperature in the workplace what is that reasonable temperature presumably there's a is there a lower limit and an upper limit or just or just one or
1: so the approved code of practice suggests that the minimum temperature in a workplace should normally be for those people who work in a workplace where they're sat where they're sedentary uh, this should be at least 16 degrees celsius now to be honest I think that's a bit cold.
0: Sounds good to me. I I can think of some people who wouldn't think that.
1: (laughs) If the work involves rigorous physical effort, so maybe a gymnasium or something like that, then the temperature should be at least 13 degrees Celsius. And these temperatures are not legal requirements, but the employer does have a duty, as we said earlier, to ensure a reasonable temperature, whatever those particular circumstances are.
0: So would you suggest that employers have some kind of policy on this? Because... You know, one person sitting there, I, I jokingly said a moment ago that I quite like the sound of 16 degrees, but I know in our office, there are people who were completely the opposite of me and would walk into to my room and go, oh, it's, it's cold in here. So should there be some policy on, you know, should there be a definitive line where it's no longer safe to be there and go home or?
1: It's very difficult. I think there needs to be a minimum where it's no longer safe where it's no longer reasonable to expect people to do that work. I think 16 degrees, whilst I believe that might be a bit cold, I think that's a sensible minimum if you're expecting people to sit and work at a desk.
0: Okay, moving on then into the Your Working Life section. And this month, we're taking a bit of a look at the updated Keeping Children Safe in Education document. Um, In a nutshell, before we go any further, Martin, what is the Keeping Children Safe in Education document?
1: So this is the government's statutory document on keeping children safe in education to do with covering issues such as safeguarding of the pupils, safeguarding of the staff and also to do with safer recruitment.
0: It's um, been updated and comes into force, the newest version comes into force on the 1st of September 2021, and at that point, the old 2020 document will be withdrawn. So given that it's the government statutory guidance for schools and colleges and safeguarding children, it's absolutely vital that schools and colleges update their um, safeguarding procedures in line with this new document.
1: Normally, in September, every education setting will be required to... To update their safeguarding policy in line with the updated guidance that comes through from government. And at every setting that I've ever visited or worked at, there has been information about keeping children safe in education that staff have been required to read, understand, and then sign to say that they understand the advice that's been given. It's really important that we follow this guidance in order to make sure that the settings that we work in and the children that we work with are kept as safe as possible.
0: Yeah, as you say, I can remember having those um, those bits of paper in the pigeonhole. You know, you must make sure you've read it and signed to say you've read it and return it to whoever by a certain date. So for this one, what's changed then? For 2021's edition, what's changed?
1: As we said, this is statutory guidance and this year it's been revised, reordered and expanded to make it more comprehensive and also to use up-to-date terminology. One of the key issues uh, that has arisen over the last 12 to 18 months has been online safety, particularly with the move to remote learning um, and as a result of increased use of the social media and and the internet. And so this now includes advice on grooming, coercive behaviour, peer-on-peer abuse is also highlighted with a focus on it could happen here
0: so it's been made more comprehensive in many areas um, and as you said some sections have been reordered and been uh, you know it now goes into more depth um is that, are they are they, the, are they the the main areas you just mentioned there yeah
1: online safety and guidance of resources have been strengthened um, and lots of bits have been moved about to make them have a bit more uh, flow uh, there's like I said a particular focus on remote learning filters and monitors for internet security and also uh, guidance on how schools should manage information security um, particularly because of the use of remote education.
0: So you know I imagine everyone who's working in education is going to have to um, like we just said read the updated versions of probably signed to see you've done it but fundamentally what does it mean for you Uh, or for our members as a teacher or TA or nursery worker or
1: school and college leader? The document is split into two key parts. And part one sets out what staff need to know. It explains their responsibilities. It outlines what abuse and neglect are and what they look like and what staff should be looking out for. And it explains how to report concerns. New this time, it also references promoting children's welfare. And I guess the key piece of advice is in all cases, if you're not sure about what any of this means, then you need to speak to your designated safeguarding lead.
0: And I suppose the
1: final point on this is that um,
0: in the end, um, what you do as an individual, as an employee uh, on this is probably likely to be directed by your employer, by senior managers in the school um to some degree in in policies that they implement so follow those and make sure you understand them
1: it's very very important to make sure that you understand them and that you follow them because disciplinary action can be taken against you if you fail to follow um the policy Safeguarding is that important so please if you're unsure about any aspect of your workplace's safeguarding policy or in any case concerned about any child then have a chat with your designated safeguarding lead because they then can make the decision about what needs to happen next.
0: Right finally for this month it's time to bust some myths. And this week, specifically, we're going to try and bust some special leave myths. Boom! So back in June, we we touched on um, annual leave, but there are other kinds of leave other than Just annual leave and holidays and things like that. Um, Now, I know there's quite a few. Can you give us a rundown perhaps of what the different kinds of special leave are and then maybe we'll touch on one or two? Okay,
1: so you're absolutely right. Other than uh, sickness absence and maybe annual leave and holiday leave, there are dozens and dozens of different types of special leaves of absence. And it's important for all of our members to check with their employers in the staff handbook or in their contracts to understand what these different types of of leave are, how they might be used for them, and when they're applicable. It's important to note that your contract is so important here because most of these types of leave, you are not legally entitled to be paid for, But a lot of employers will. So as we've said before, and I'm sure we will say again, please check your contract.
0: So maybe, uh, because it is myth-busting, maybe I should sort of give you a myth specifically then. So maybe the myth is you are not entitled to any time off outside of your annual leave.
1: You are allowed time off for family and dependents, and that's written into law. As an employee you're allowed time off to deal with an emergency involving a dependent so that's a spouse, a partner, child, grandchild, parent or someone else who might depend on you for care. How much you get is not set in law but employers are supposed to give you a reasonable amount of time to deal with that emergency. There's no limit on how many times you can take time off But your employer may have a chat with you if they think that you're taking too much time off or if this time off is affecting your work.
0: I want to just focus on that word dependent for a second. I know you gave examples of who a dependent might be. But let's say, for example, your parent, one of your parents requires hospital attention urgently and outside of maybe an ambulance going to get them, you're the only one that can go and take them to hospital. Are they, they're not really your dependent, are they? You know, if, if you don't live with them, how how does that sort of work? Would that be something you're allowed time off for?
1: It depends. Dependents might be parents, particularly if those parents are elderly and have no other way of getting around. But you mentioned appointments, and it's important to point out that time off for family independence is usually emergency time off only. So if it's an appointment, then you could reasonably have known about that beforehand and unfortunately you can't have time off under this particular special leave for appointments either for yourself or indeed for somebody else. You would be recommended to take perhaps annual leave or perhaps parental leave if it was a child instead.
0: So this um, this special leave we're talking about, is it paid time off or unpaid time off?
1: You might be paid, as we've said, Check your contract because there's no requirement for employers to pay you for this type of special leave.
0: So in a nutshell, so far, we're saying you are entitled to time off if it's an emergency for a dependent. That's correct. But, and you might be paid. You might. Or you might not. Check your contract. Check your
1: contract. And the same goes actually for other types of leave. Um, bereavement leave, for example. Now, most people think that they are are automatically entitled to time off to attend funerals and things like that. Now, obviously, you are entitled to time off if a dependent dies, for example, your partner, your parent, or your child, or sadly, in some instances, if a child is stillborn. Again, the law doesn't say how much time can be taken off, just that the amount should be reasonable. Again, it doesn't say that you will automatically be paid for this time off, but most employers will pay you for this sort of time off. It's important to point out though that there is no legal right to time off for a funeral if the person who died is not a dependent of you. For example, a friend. Your employer might allow you to have time off, but there's no legal right. So again, you might have to book annual leave or some other form of leave to cover that.
0: I've always assumed that a dependent is someone who depends on you, you know, as a child depends on a parent or if you're caring for your parents, they are your dependent. Is it sort of a broader more general term?
1: Some employers will list the particular people for whom their policies apply but in general the government advice is that dependents include people such as spouses, partners, children, grandchildren, parents. Interestingly they don't mention grandparents in that list so again check your policy, check your contract, because your employer may be more generous than this rather restrictive list. Okay, thanks. So before we wrap up
0: uh, the myth-busting um, section, just other types of special leave that I'm not asking you to go into loads and loads of detail on. Perhaps we can put um, some information about it onto our website um, for people to go and find, should it apply to them. But time off of public duties, governors... Uh, reservist forces,
1: jury service, so on and so forth. Does that all come under this as well? This is all covered under this and most employers will have some sort of policy which explains their rules and their guidance for special leave of absence. Time off for public duties, if you're an employee and you need to take time off because you're a school governor or because you're a magistrate or a local councillor, your employer must allow you to take reasonable time off work But again, you won't be paid for the hours that you've missed unless your contract says so. Importantly, though, you also don't have to make up the time. Similarly, if you are called up for jury service, your employer really can't say no. Myths busted. Boom! Before
0: we go and wrap up uh, for another month, I just want to draw everyone's attention to some training courses and free CPD opportunities that are available to community members and all voice members are now community members. So they're available to all voice members um, who are working in education. So these courses are free to our members, but normally would cost anything from 60 to 100 pounds if they were not our members. There are that many. I simply can't go through all of them now. So I've picked out a few I thought may be of interest to people. It gives you a flavour of the kind of thing that's available and out there. Um, have a look, you know, go online and have a look, see what else we've got available to us. If you can't find it, get in touch with us and we'll point at you in the right direction. So some of those that are available at the moment, assertiveness skills certification, ADHD awareness, anxiety awareness, Asperger's syndrome awareness, art therapy, become an online tutor. Child psychology uh, certification, improving school attendance, lesson planning for teachers, managing classroom behaviour, speech therapist induction certification, staying safe online. That links back to the keeping children safe in education stuff we talked about earlier on. Tackling hate crime, a teaching assistant certification. There are honestly so many. um, I couldn't list them all now. At the end of each one, you get a certificate, um, as a free certificate. So go online, have a look at those. They're available to all our members for free. And we've, we've got a whole bunch on there at the moment. We also have lots of training over the next 12 to 18 months all across the country for our workplace reps and for our roving reps. So if you are one of those, keep an eye out for dates and locations and get signed up for those. If you'd like to be a workplace rep or a roving rep or any other kind of rep for us, please do get in touch. We always, always love having new volunteers. We offer training uh, and support. You wouldn't be going it alone. If you're interested, get in touch anywhere in the country. Martin, do you want to take us through
1: our social media outlets? So many of you will be familiar with our website, www.voicetheunion.org.uk and there you can find out all of the latest COVID updates. You can also find other information and a load of information sheets which cover an awful lot of the topics that we have been looking at in the last six months in these policy podcasts. All you need to do is log in, download those, and you can then pin those up on your notice boards at work or share them with your colleagues. You can also get information from Facebook, facebook.com forward slash community union for updates, news, events and more. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Voice the Union. Or you can email Rob and myself for anything policy related at educationpolicy at community-tu.org.
0: And finally, don't forget to like and subscribe uh, to this podcast if you've enjoyed it and share it far and wide with friends, family and colleagues. And we will see you next time for the next edition of the Education Policy Podcast.